Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Triwizard Tournament. Today we will be discussing Hermione's first attempt at a protest, the arrival of Mad-Eye Moody, and what seems so appealing to the boys about the Triwizard Tournament. So when the students arrive at the Great Hall, Harry notices that all the usual professors are at the head table, except there's no one in the seat for the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. The sorting takes place with Harry seeing it for the first time since his own sorting, and the meal begins, nearly headless Nick mentioning that Hogwarts has house elves working in the kitchen, um, makes Hermione stop eating in protest of what she calls slave labor. At the end of the meal, Dumbledore makes announcements. He says there will be no Quidditch tournament this year because... And then he is interrupted by the door of the Great Hall banging open to reveal Mad-Eye Moody, who Dumbledore announces as the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. After this interruption, Dumbledore finally reveals that the Triwizard Tournament will be taking place at Hogwarts this year. The Triwizard Tournament is a competition between Hogwarts, Bobaton, and Durmstrang. It hasn't happened for the last hundred years because, quote, the death toll mounted so high. A champion will be chosen from each of the three wizarding schools on Halloween. These three students will have to compete in three magical tasks. In order to make all of this work, Hogwarts will be hosting students from both Beaubaton and Durmstrang during the school year. Because the competition is so dangerous, only students over 17, that is to say of age, in the wizarding world can enter. Fred and George at the table are already planning on how to get around the age restriction. Later that night, while they're going to bed, Ron says that he might go for it, meaning, like, register for the tournament, if Fred and George figure out how to get around the age restriction. Harry fantasizes that he's gotten into the Triwizard Tournament and won the whole thing, impressing his crush, Cho Chang. Well, the first thing to note about this chapter is that um, it's raining extremely hard. Right. So that's something to keep in mind for later discussions. But um, when the trio get into the entrance hall with Neville, they immediately get bombarded by Peeves throwing water balloons at them. <laughs> right, right. Which is a very funny scene that um, that leads to some <laughs> confusion and um, Professor McGonagall accidentally strangling Hermione for a minute. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, and, and then they finally get into the Great Hall. They're all tired and exhausted and soaking wet and cold. Um, and they really want to start eating, but they can't because they still have the sorting ceremony to get through mm-hmm. first. And the first years are late because they're trying to get across the lake and it's an incredibly fierce storm. Um, and then uh, Colin Creepy says that his brother is going to be sorted. And then that leads to a discussion about um, what I think is an interesting tidbit of this chapter, which is that families don't necessarily get sorted together into right. the same house. Hermione points out that Parvati Patil and Padma Patil are twins, but Padma's in Ravenclaw and Parvati is in Gryffindor. Right. Um, And they're identical twins, so you'd think that they'd go in the same house. Um, And that's also an important thing to note because those two come up again as um, candidates for Harry and Ron to bring as dates to the Yule Ball later on. Um, Because Harry remembers that Parvati has a sister because of this discussion. Right, right. Um, and I think that's a really interesting fact, not that Parvati and Padma are sisters, but that, <laughs> that families don't always get sorted together, right. um, because it means that each person gets judged as an individual, not based on their heritage yes. alone. 
Um, so like Malfoy didn't just get into Slytherin because he's pure blood. Otherwise, every pure blood would get into Slytherin. Right. He got into Slytherin because of his qualities, what he, as we've discussed, um, aspires to or yeah. or admires in that house. Um, and because he is pure blood, that allows him to be in Slytherin. Yeah. Um, whereas. If he weren't, he couldn't get in. And so it's sort of um, a little bit of an anomaly or maybe uh, interesting that all of the Weasleys are in Gryffindor because there's so many of them and they're, they are all sorted into the same house. And you yeah. would think that, but I think that just says something more about like the values as a family. Right. That, you know, it's still, it's still, it does matter um, in that way, but it, it's more about what are your personal values and they just are very... Uh, they're all very similar in that way in the family. And they mm-hmm. all have, um, they all have these like kind of shared Gryffindor traits. Yeah. Particularly Molly, I think definitely passed those characteristics and, mm-hmm. and values onto her children. And we think about her, her family history. We don't know much about Arthur's family, but, um, both of Molly's brothers, Gideon and Fabian Pruitt were war heroes in the first fight against Voldemort mm-hmm. and both died, um, right. defending the order of the Phoenix. Um, so that kind of like heritage definitely gets passed on to her kids and all of them sort of embody that Gryffindor spirit of bravery and self-sacrifice for sure. Um, but yeah, I think I think that idea that like it's not just being a Weasley that got mm-hmm. you into Gryffindor, but that like, you know, Ron, you actually deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of cuts both ways, though, because when he was a first year, he was really worried about not getting sorted right. into Gryffindor, not being judged worthy like the rest of his family was right um but i think he should also take some pride in the fact that he was it's it is i mean i know we're not focusing on um percy right now but it's always interesting to me that percy is a gryffindor because um we don't he's someone who you know i guess eventually semi-redeems himself but i don't think of him as i I don't think of um percy as someone who is necessarily very uh gryffindor Gryffindor like and it's not it's not even like Neville who at first seems so non-Gryffindor and then clearly turns himself into that yeah but uh Percy is in some ways almost like the opposite so it's interesting but they are all they're all they are all sorted into Gryffindor. Percy is such a fascinating character um and maybe in one of these chapters we'll we'll do a, a, a deeper character study of Percy but I think in essence like According to our thesis, you know, the the hat detects what you value most. Yeah. And I guess Percy must really value those traits of his parents and the way that he was raised. Mm-hmm. That, like, bravery, chivalrous attitude, mm-hmm. um, heroism being, like, a thing to aspire to. And even though he falls short for most of his life, um, you know, he lets his ambition kind of cloud that part of him. Um, he does redeem himself at the end. So I think that it's still a part of who he is, yeah. even if he gets led down the wrong path. Um Another thing about this scene that I really love is the Sorting Hat song. And mm-hmm. it's the first one that we hear since uh, Philosopher's Stone, um, just because Harry wasn't present at either of the other two that we've that we've um, had. Um, and I think it's the best sorting song in the yeah. series, at least in my opinion. It's very good. It gives us a lot of background information on who the founders were, what they valued, mm-hmm. um, how they sort of like founded Hogwarts together. And I think the hat was very intentional about this song because this book really is about like the four houses and how they can Coming all together. come together and mm-hmm. be one unified Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the next book to some extent is too. Um, but also, you know, knowing Hogwarts's identity 
in the context of these other schools and differentiating it from that. Hogwarts was a school where four founders came together and unified around one idea, which was that wizards should be educated um, in a safe place mm-hmm. away from away from like muggles that might try to attack them. Um, but they all had different ideas about what they valued in wizards. Right, right. Um, whereas each other school was founded by a single person who had an idea for how that school should teach wizarding philosophy. Um, Hogwarts was always about um, different ideologies coming together. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really important to sort of recognize the history um, alongside these two other schools that will now mm-hmm. be joining them. And I think that that's why I really like it as a song. Again, like along with what we were talking about last chapter with like opening up the idea of the wizarding world, like now we're yeah. kind of focusing more in on the history of Hogwarts. Right. And like Hermione, I always wanted to read Hogwarts a history, yeah. but of course that book doesn't really exist. Yeah. So I had to content myself with reading things like this and kind of gleaning information out of it. Right, right. But speaking of Hermione, um, she has a really funny kind of intense moment in she this does. chapter. It's, I think it's really interesting. So this is, um, so a few chapters ago, Hermione sort of learned a little bit about house elves and got pretty upset about their position as you know, uh, like an underclass, underclass, yeah. yes, and um, the kind of the slavery situation they're in. So, um, Hermione stages a very mini hunger strike. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> nearly headless Nick, um, mentions like the house elves, you know, did a great job or something on the food. Yeah, it was, it was Peeves wanted to attend the feast, and they said no, and so he like went into the kitchens and started destroying stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. And he said terrified the house elves out of their wits. And, and that's Hermione's, what set Hermione yeah. off. Hermione's like, what? You mean house elves are the ones cooking this food? Like she, you know, probably none of us until this time had thought about if the food was being made. I think I always thought that it was just magic appearing yeah. food. I really thought, I mean, we didn't know about Gamp's law of elemental transfiguration, which says that you can't just make food. Yeah. But I always thought that it was just magically appeared. Yeah. And that they would just be like... I want pork chops for dinner yeah. and like D- Dumbledore or whomever like sets the menu for the feast and yeah. then it just all appears. It appears. So we had, so this is a very like completely opening up a new uh, side of Hogwarts and yeah. like the, you know, servants of Hogwarts, which we find out are house elves. And um, I, it's funny because I think it's a very like 14 year old a form of protest, which yeah. is how old she is because she's like, you know, the next morning we, you know, Hermione is sort of like eating breakfast and like is clearly very hungry and Ron's like, oh, what happened to the protest? You know, kind of like <laughs> making fun of her because obviously you can't sustain a hunger strike um, or, you know, some people can, but not a kid. Um, and it's kind of representative of those moments when you, you realize something sort of as a kid or a teenager that you've uh, taken for granted or enjoyed for a long time is yeah. actually like tainted by you know it was built by slaves or something that you know a lot of things there's a lot of real life examples of this or of even course. just the idea of like oh um you know this was made in a sweatshop or this was you know these people were being unpaid unfair wages that like, cooked this food anything that that mm-hmm. happens like that and so i while it's a very kind of silly protest that's obviously not going to change anything if she doesn't eat her dinner i do think that what's impressive about hermione and and you know it's it we said this is ron's uh book and last book was hermione's book but you know this is a big book for hermione too and i think that she does um what i think what's impressive about her is that she does you know 
do her research and like she always does and she goes to the library and she learns as much as she can kind of after this about house elves and house elf rights and house elf all these things and even if you know uh the organization she creates and all this is not necessarily successful or um the most effective she really does her best to kind of do what she can on her own to actually fight this in a way that's not you know oh me not eating today yeah, yeah. I think you make uh, a lot of really good points. I think the the not eating thing, while funny, is not a really effective um, movement or protest. Um, the main thing about hunger strikes is you have to get people's attention. Right. And otherwise it's not effective. Otherwise you're literally just starving yourself for no reason. So Hermione just refusing to eat, I think, is a moral stand that she's taking mm-hmm. to say, like, it's wrong, it's morally wrong to eat food that was prepared by slaves. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to do it. But then she realizes that she has to do it in order to survive and that more effective protests would be organization, maybe something akin to collective bargaining or lobbying, Mm -hmm. um, trying to get house elves involved in the movement, um, informing people of what's going on, educating people, making them aware because she wasn't aware. She didn't even know that it was a problem until that very evening. So, yeah, I think think this is very, very smart and we can see that Hermione um, is using her uh aptitude for scholarship and learning and her drive and passion in a really productive way okay so we're going to talk about um mad moody's entrance now and um our first time seeing him as a character and i think that we should kind of have a disclaimer or a way that we talk about mad moody in this book yeah that in each kind of important scene that he's in this being the first one, that we talk about what um, what everyone around him is is seeing, what, what Harry's impression is, you know, what kind of the first-time reader's impression of the character is, and then, and what we think his motivations are, but then also what is Barty Crouch Jr. doing in right. this moment? Yep. And what is he trying to project? What is he getting right or getting wrong? And um, you know, how he might be kind of feeling in this whole situation. Right. Yeah. Because this is a really weird thing to try to understand. This is very uncommon in literature to be introduced to a character and the entire time they were actually, yeah, someone else. you know, someone else that was inhabiting that body. Mm-hmm. It's very, very strange. So to, to characterize Mad-Eye Moody in this book, we really don't have that much to go on. We have other people's descriptions of him and we have the way that other characters that know him respond to what Barty Crouch is doing. Right, right. Like Dumbledore, like McGonagall, like like Hagrid, like Arthur Weasley. But we don't have any of his actual behaviors or mannerisms to look at. All we have is sort of a rough approximation, an acting performance, really, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Barty Crouch, who's playing this character. Um, so we don't really know whether the mannerisms that he's embodying here are really Mad-Eye's personality or whether it's something that he thought maybe would be Mad-Eye's personality, and so he's invented. Um, the drinking from his hip flask is something that we know that Mad-Eye Moody does. Yes. He only drinks from, from a hip flask that he has prepared beforehand. Um, he never drinks or eats anything that he hasn't that he doesn't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so Barty Crouch Jr. uses that to his advantage, and right. that's one of the main things about this um, performance that's very convincing, is that he puts the polyjuice potion in the hip flask, and then he only ever drinks from that, so he I mean, it always seems like that's like he gets the key. to stay. <laughs> he gets to stay as Moody forever, basically. It's kind of like that would be 
if that was not, you know, it's a very handy thing that was written in because if yeah. that was not the case, it probably wouldn't have worked out. But yeah, and just to to reiterate for everyone, you know, this is Barty Cross Jr. This is it's not that um Barty Cross Jr. is somehow in Mad Eye's body. It's not like a quarrel situation. This is no, it's a him, polyjuice potion. Polyjuice potion. Situation. So it is literally while he looks like Mad Eye Moody, literally Barty Crouch Jr. is the one walking around being. Right. But physically, it's an identical copy of Mad Eye Moody's yes. body. Right. So it has his vocal cords. It has his, you know, missing eye. It has a chunk out of his nose. It has his dirty fingernails. Everything. It has everything. Yeah. Um, and peg leg. I always forget about the peg leg. Peg leg, I know. Um, uh, but yeah, so so what? Do, how does he come across? I think he comes across as a huge ham in this scene. He makes a really dramatic entrance. He does. And he's like, he it's like walks right up to Dumbledore and talks to him. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a horror movie, like a really old one, like those old monster movies that Universal made in the, in the, like the twenties, like the Dracula mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like it, you know, it, it has this like gothic imagery. It's a dark and stormy night and there's lightning and right. the door opens bang. And then it illuminates the, the lightning backlights his yeah. frame as he walks into the hall. You know, it's very gothic. And, um, and clearly that was his intention is to make an entrance like that. Yeah. So we, I think that's true. Like he's like, I- I'm late, you know, whatever. But, uh, and how do we assume that he even got there? I guess is the real question. Like, why is everybody else... How how do the professors get to Hogwarts? I assume they apparate to Hogsmeade and then, like, either take a carriage or, like, walk from yeah. Hogsmeade up to Hogwarts. Um, but, yeah, apparently he's late. We can assume that he's late because, in reality, like, he and Voldemort and Wormtail had to sort of collaborate on, like, what their plan is and right. finalize things um, and get stuff ready. And, like, he had to put Moody in the trunk and all that stuff. So, right. like... There's a lot of preparation that needed to be made, um, so that's probably why he's actually late. But also, I think he wanted an excuse to make a scene like this. I think this is, if we, yeah, we think about what's BCJ doing right now, um, he is having fun. I think he's starting, he is excited and probably, like, you know, nervous, but is like, a, here I am, I look like Matt I. Moody, and I'm, this is, like, my entrance. This is my scene. Yeah. I'm going into the performance. Yeah. Um, but I think I wish Hogwarts had a theater department. He would have been a great. <laughs> he would actor. have been great. It should have that would have helped him on a better path. But yeah. I think um, what we see as uh, like re- first time readers or um, in, from Harry's perspective is kind of very scary, but also very cool, like badass kind of person. Yeah. Like I don't think that I don't think that people are seeing him as a ham. I think they're seeing him as a a scary. Yeah. You know. Right, um, we only call him a ham because we know that he's acting. Right. But, uh, yeah, but for people, it just seems like he is making a dramatic entrance, but that's really who he is. Um, and this is also our first, we have to remember that even though we heard about Matt Moody yeah, earlier. This is us seeing him for the first we've time. We've never seen him before, and we've also never heard a description of him before. So we actually don't know that he, um, I believe that's true, right? Right, yeah, We don't yeah. know anything about it. And so now we see not only is this the person we've heard about, but... He has a glass eye that rolls around his head. He has a peg leg. His nose is missing. Like he has, <laughs> yeah. he is not a, he's not a typical looking person. And so um, very willing to stare at. And I think it's very interesting that the only thing probably that could distract people from uh, Mad Eye Moody is what happens next, which is Dumbledore announcing the tournament. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, the the Triwizard Tournament, which is this huge deal, and you know Hermione knows what it is because she's read about it before, but um, Harry has no idea what it is, and uh, Fred and George seem to know what it is. Probably they've heard about it from like history class or something like that but um but ron doesn't really know what Mm -hmm. it is either um so they're just kind of hearing about it for the first time and and us as the reader we're hearing about it for the first time for sure but just from the name we know that it's about three wizards Mm -hmm. and that it's a tournament so you know they're competing to see which one is going to win but essentially you know we know about the three schools we can kind of put together okay the three schools are going to compete each one's going to have one person that they nominate or something um and then those all compete together um, but you pointed out that this is a very weird thing to have happen. And it's almost like a, a scenario that was invented just so that they would have a book or something like that. Like it's a Hogwarts reality show. Yeah. I was thinking that as a, the Hogwarts reality show, but I, as I was reading this again and and then rereading kind of the description and what Dumbledore explains to them about what this is. And also just that everyone's so excited and, he, and that, you know, knowing that all the parents were so excited for the kids to do this, I'm like, you know, what the heck? Why would you be excited for this to happen? This seems like an objectively bad idea. There's, they talked about how many deaths there were before, and they're like, oh, we've made safety, you know, changes, whatever. But it's almost like a semi, you know, obviously this is pre-Hunger Games, but like a little semi-Hunger Games scenario, (laughs) a little more regulated, but it's like, send your kid into these dangerous situations and compete and see who wins. Um... And it's especially in this moment, it seems like a very uh, testosterone fueled, um, you know, event because Fred and George are very into it. Harry and Ron are both really into it when they've been through so much real stuff already. Yeah. Maybe this is just my testosterone talking, but I also really love the idea of the Triwizard Tournament. Yeah. Um, I would not enter at all. Yeah. I would not be interested in the slightest in entering, but I would love the the theatricality, the show of everything, like having that happen at your school is awesome. For one thing, you get to meet all these international witches and wizards and like there's a whole cultural exchange that would be really cool. Um, And for another thing, like watching people do incredible feats of strength and wizardry and, and, and skill and intelligence, like it's kind of like the Olympics, Mm -hmm. you know, I would love to go watch the Olympics. I would not enter the Olympics, (laughs) but. but it's like the Olympics, but as if like, you know, but more dangerous Olympics, yeah, you know, from yeah. what we hear. But like, still, I would I would go see that. Yeah, you know? yeah. okay. I yeah. wouldn't want people to die, but I would be, like, excited for the challenges they would face yes, and things yeah. like that. So I, I get it. And and I think, actually, Dumbledore has another reason for wanting this event to go forward. I mean, we, we point out that this event hasn't been done for over 100 years um, because, as Hermione points out, the death toll mounts really high and, and they stopped. Um so why would Dumbledore want this to happen again? Well, I think a, a main reason that he is allowing it to happen, and especially allowing it to happen at Hogwarts, is because he is reading the signs, like Hagrid said, that um, that Voldemort might be coming back or mm-hmm. might be making an attempt at coming back. Like he knows about Frank Bryce and Bertha Jorkins' appearance. He has the diary that Harry gave him in, in Chamber of Secrets that he knows is a Horcrux or was a Horcrux. So he knows that Voldemort is still for lack of a better word, alive Mm -hmm. and out there. And he knows why. He knows Wormtail's gone. And he knows Wormtail escaped. He knows about the prophecy that Trelawney made last year that Harry told him about, Mm -hmm. um, that Voldemort would return greater and more terrible than ever before um, with Wormtail's help. And I think he's really trying to organize, like, international 
cooperation within the wizarding community. Yeah. And that the Triwizard Tournament is a great way to forge those bonds because not just like the competition in and of itself, not the people fighting Mm -hmm. to see who's the best, but the school is getting together, the teachers interacting with other students of different cultures, the students interacting with students of other cultures and teachers of other cultures, you know, Karkaroff, Madame Maxime, their students um, meeting Hogwarts students and all making friends. Yeah. You know, Hermione and Crumb, like like um, someone says at the end of this book is like that's or Percy says that's that's what it's all about international magical cooperation like mm-hmm. Hermione and Crumb making friends um, when they become pen pals like that's that's the kind of thing that's that this was want. supposed to yeah, foster yeah. yeah and I never really thought so much about that that this is really um, like a political move to do to to say we're gonna we're gonna host this we're gonna bring this it's almost like a little like little like student un convention where we're all gonna get together and and do this and then we're also all gonna like have our like uh pissing contest is that a nice way to say it i think like (laughs) it's a little bit it's a little bit of that um and it's also just european i wonder why they excluded all the other wizards i know i was thinking about that too i'm like well it's just these three schools so you know why are these the most you know it's like western europe schools but um back to the reality show thing for a second i think you know, we'll talk obviously more about the champions that are selected, and obviously Harry is for reasons that we know. But I think if we focus on the other three, they are. It's like Crum is a celebrity already. He is a famous Quidditch player. Yeah. He is like very popular, renowned as the best seeker in the world. Then we have Cedric, who is like the most popular uh, yeah, boy in school. In school, essentially. And Flora, who is probably the most popular girl in her school. Very beautiful, very, like, vain, very, like, you know. I mean, we love Flora later on, vain, too. Vain, but very talented. Very talented. So I'm not saying that these people are not talented, but they're also picked as, like, you know, uh, it, it seems like the Goblet of Fire is, like, I will pick the most uh talented prestigious people celebs like they gotta they have to be hot they have to be good at this stuff you know which we don't know if that's always been true but i do think it's interesting that it's like these people you know it's not like uh i mean and she's not of age but it's not like hermione was picked and i don't think hermione would have been picked even if she was right you know I, i agree i think I think the goblet probably takes into account some amount of, like, glory already achieved. Mm -hmm. You know, this tournament is all about seeking glory, as Harry notes in his fantasy later on. Um, Cedric is probably the interesting one for me because, you know, he doesn't have, like, a a really star-studded past or anything like that. He hasn't done any heroics in his life. He's just, like a really popular boy who like everyone really likes because he's a decent person yeah and he's nice to everybody and he's very humble and he's good at quidditch he's He's not amazing at quidditch but he's good at quidditch like his his dad pointed out like you beat harry potter and cedric's like dad it wasn't even a thing like Mm -hmm. harry fell off his broom because the dementors were there like stop talking about it like because he's genuinely humble yeah Yeah, that's why people like him and so he's kind of the odd one out of the three that's true. You know, Victor Crumb may be humble, but he's also literally the best seeker in the world. Right. Fleur Delacour is clearly not humble. Yeah. Um, and she's very talented. So Cedric is kind of the odd one out as this kind of like, you know, humble and um, quietly popular guy. He's, he's in some ways, embodies Hogwarts very well because uh, he is a unifying feature of the four houses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's brave. He's talented. He's smart. Um, he's very hardworking and humble. He has probably some cleverness and ambition, too, in mm-hmm. Slytherin House. But, yeah, he's a good unifying feature. 
and as we see, the whole school does really rally around Cedric. Oh, yeah. As they're like bannermen, and almost nobody supports Harry except for Gryffindor House. So we know that Harry is, you know, as even as a first-time reader, we probably know Harry's going to somehow be in the tournament, um, whether that's beca- intentionally or not, which, you know, it's not, um, but that's obviously a point of contention. So I think that it's it's interesting to think about not only, like, do we just think that's eventually going to turn turn out to be the case, but that, you know, Ron's thinking about it and Harry's thinking about it. And I think some of that is just, like, teenage boy, like, fantasy of being the best. And, like, we see at the end, Harry's, like, imagining his crush, Cho Chang, seeing yeah. mm-hmm. him win. Um, but do we think that there's there's more to it for Harry? Like, do we think that he feels the need to prove himself in some way? Because I, that, I find it interesting because I can see this need to live up to kind of his name and his um, his history. But I can also see, like, for him, again, and Ron and all of them, I'm like, you guys have already, like, defeated Voldemort before. Like, yeah. what is happening here? You know, yeah. like, this is not more important than that. And I guess I, I would assume that they wouldn't necessarily need to do it in this way. So Harry is, is very strange in this regard because as a child, like, as, a, as an infant, he was proclaimed as a hero by the entire like wizarding world and he hadn't done anything to deserve that in his mind it was just kind of done to him right um he was like you know a marked man in that way but uh you know as he grows up he's like i want to live up to that perception that people have of me and of course at the age of 11 he does he defeats voldemort and quarrel and (laughs) protects the philosopher's stone from them right um and most people would be like that's good enough for me yeah you know i don't need to prove myself anymore but then, you know, the next year he does it again. He defeats um, Voldemort again and he kills a basilisk. But the thing is that both of these things were kind of like secretive acts of heroism. Mm-hmm. They were like underground, literally, below yeah. the school. Um, and like no one really saw them happen. Um, so people aren't really sure about like details of things like that. Yeah. But to me, this would have been the talk of the school for months and months and months after each one of those things. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone would have been talking about how amazing it was that Harry was able to, like, defeat Voldemort mm-hmm. um, in these different ways. And, like, to me, that should totally be enough. But for some reason, Harry still kind of is a glory seeker. He still wants this, like, live up to this hero fantasy that he has, um, especially when it comes to impressing Cho Chang. That seems to be the focus of this fantasy that he has. Right. But also, like... Harry says later, like, he never really wanted to enter the tournament. It was just, like, a fantasy. Um, but, you know, we have to think that there was some part of him that wanted to enter. Yeah, and some of this is just, like, you know, we've talked about Harry's ego in the past, which, like, is definitely a part of this. I also think, though, I wonder if maybe, yes, he has been defeating Voldemort and doing all these things, but he maybe wants to kind of define himself on his own um, beyond his, like, you know, family history that he doesn't feel like he's had any control over and beyond yeah. his association with Voldemort, which is this horrible, scary thing that nobody wants to talk about. And so he wants to be able to say, like, you know, in some way, I'm just a really great wizard and I look at me and I won this and people like me for this instead of, uh, you know, you know, he wants it to be something that has nothing to do with Voldemort. Yeah, yeah. I think he wants to be seen as a hero as a person, not like, the only one who can defeat Voldemort. 
because that's like such a specific category. He wants to be like Harry Potter, the hero, mm-hmm. which I mean, people already think of him that way. So I don't know why he's still like out there chasing yeah. glory. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and then we, we do see, as I mentioned, like his crush on Cho Chang is still seems to be developing. Um, and that becomes a, a focal point of this book. Uh, but, you know, he's 14. He, it's still a very juvenile crush. Um, and he's, it's, it's more of like a, he really likes the idea of her and he yes. thinks she's really pretty, um, but he doesn't know her. No, that's they've like, like the never whole, spoken. Yeah. The whole point of that storyline is that like the first time they actually have like a real conversation for a long time when they go on their date yeah. next year, he's like, I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> Can we not talk about the things that you want to talk about? And she's like, but I want to talk about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a very schoolboy crush kind of storyline. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Triwizard Tournament. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the characterization of Mad Eye Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr.'s acting as Mad Eye Moody, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we stare into Chapter 13, Mad-Eye Moody. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.